Hi, my name is Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn, and in July of 1990, I died. In 1990, Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn survived a sudden death event that required 22 minutes of CPR and years of difficult recovery to reclaim her life as a wife, a mother, an athlete, and a nurse practitioner. Today on Sliver of Hope, the podcast series on post-traumatic growth, Dr. Bridget Parsh talks with Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn about guiding survivors towards growth after trauma through Metahab. To learn more, visit metahab.com. Thanks for being here, Joyce. So, you know, thanks for being here, Bridget, too. So Bridget and I have worked with this idea for a long period of time. Obviously, I had the event and I did the initial research on it, but Bridget has been instrumental in helping me process this um, throughout the years. So I guess to start off with, how did this all happen? Well, in July, like I said, in 1990, um, I was at a swimming event with my three children, my husband. Um, Our children were on a swim team. There was a championship meet. I have zero recollection of any of this. There's about a month of my life that I don't remember anything about. But um, I'm very active, triathloner, marathoner, and they had a fun adult relay um, to break up the championship before they swam the finals. So I grabbed my husband and a couple of friends and said, come on, let's swim this. We're going to win this, and I'm going to swim last because I'm the fastest because I've been training a lot. So I apparently dove into the pool, last leg of the the, uh, relay, finished at the side of the pool that was 13 feet deep, and for whatever reason, I did finish. I guess the timer asked if I needed help out. I said no, and I just sunk to the bottom of the pool that was 13 feet deep. My husband realized I wasn't surfacing. He dove in to the bottom of the pool, got me to the top. Luckily, because it was a championship meet, there were a lot of parents there. And luckily, some of those parents were physicians. So I received 22 minutes of CPR at poolside. They landed a helicopter in the football field and uh, life flighted me to UC Davis Med Center where I was placed on a respirator and had to struggle back from that. The first thing I can remember coming back from that was sitting in a hospital room. They transferred me out of ICU, sitting in a hospital room. And I saw my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law at the end of the bed. And I looked at them, and I said, "Um, where am I? And they said, well, remember, you had this event, and you're in the hospital. And I used to, I currently am a nurse practitioner, but prior to being a nurse practitioner, I was an RN in ICU. And I had done a lot with people in terms of resuscitation and at the point that I was at I had no more wires I had no more IV tubes or anything and I remember looking at myself and I said no that that can't be you know because I don't see anything I don't see anything on me and they said no you died and you were resuscitated and you came back and they said is there anything that we can get you and 
I love cheeseburgers, french fries, and vanilla shakes. Those are my favorite. That's my favorite meal. And I looked at them and I said, yes, you can get me, you know, one of those things. There's layers to it and there's yellow stuff on it. And it comes with these long things that you can put salt on. And it comes with this cup of cold white things that you can drink. And you can drive through places and you can get it. And that was the first time that I recognized or kind of realized that I had extensive brain damage as a result of the extended CPR and uh, that I was going to have to come back out of that. And it was very, very tough. Um, Also being in the hospital, um, the thing that came to me pretty immediately when I was going through some of the rehab they were putting me through was um, being told a lot about what I was never going to do anymore. And so when I would ask about, well, when will I run again? Oh, you're never going to run again. You'll walk, but you won't run. Well, when can I swim? Oh, you're never going to do that again. Well, when can I? And I was always being told what I couldn't do. And I remembered saying to this one doctor who is taking care of me, I walked up to him and I said, you know, you need to stop doing that. I'm living what I can't do. I need you to tell me what I can do. You need to ask me what I want to do, and then your job is to get me there. And I just was really angry. I was really angry that this happened. I was frustrated with the limitations. And so they put me through um, some sort of a rehab occupational therapy. And I forget, we went into this one room, and there was a microwave there. And they said, I want you to heat up this glass of water. And I just, I looked at them, I thought, I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. I'm not going to waste my time. I thought you were going to help me. And they go, no, I I want you to do that. And so I stood in front of that microwave, and I could not, for the life of me, figure out how to heat up a cup of water. That's so, (laughs) I can't imagine how that must have felt when it's something you've do I mean you do now all the time to heat right. up your coffee right yeah. um, but you that must have been so difficult for something that you knew it was something simple it sounded like you recognized it was something simple but it was something that you couldn't do right so overwhelming and, and, it, and I think at that point I really understood in my own head wow I'm I'm pretty messed up mm-hmm. and I'm I'm gonna need to work really hard because this is bad And uh, when they first brought my children in to see me, I don't remember this at all, but uh, they said, do you know who they are? And I barely remember. I looked at them and I said, you know, I know I know them, but I'm just not sure how I know them. So that was all, you know, coming back. And, of course, one of the things that's the fear that, am I ever going to get this back? Am I ever going to be what I was before? Am I ever going to have what I had before? And I think that over time, obviously, I regain things. But what I have found over many years is I didn't regain everything I had before, but I got more. And I didn't see that at the time. But as I moved through that and worked with people and recognized that when I needed help, I asked for it and accepted help, and I just kept moving in a positive, optimistic way for the better as far as I see it. So 
there's a lot there that yeah. you just went over. <laughs> um, so I think there's probably a lot to talk about with the event, but maybe we can talk about that as we go through. Mm-hmm. But I think the... I think what you're getting at and kind of what we had in the introduction was growth. Tell me a little bit more about I think, what you mean. I think, you know, all the, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot. And I think the growth that I look at can be everything from physical mm-hmm. to mental to spiritual for sure. And we'll talk about that a lot mm-hmm. to emotional health to growth and resilience to just all those aspects that when you are faced and confronted with something that you just think, how in the world am I ever going to get out of this ditch? How am I going to get out of this hole? And you, instead of looking at, okay, I some grandiose thing, sometimes it's just, well, today what I'm going to do is I'm going to work with that speech therapist. Today what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to a friend and say a prayer or today. So you start with simple things and you start gaining some traction. And then as you start moving through in this more productive manner, all of a sudden, I guess it's not all of a sudden, but after a time you realize, you know, I'm a little bit better. Life looks a little bit better. Um, As I mentioned, I'm a nurse practitioner and one day, um, I, I did go back to work and things did work out and so that was good. But one day I was looking at a series of x-rays with a colleague of mine and this person had fractured their bone. I can't remember whether it was a tibia or fibula, what it was, but anyway, they had a cast on. And we were trying to figure out, could we take the cast off and send them to physical therapy and they could start moving again? And um, we were looking at these series of x-rays. So you saw it the day that the incident happened, and then two days later there was another x-ray, and then a week later, and now I'm looking at, you know, four or five weeks later. And I'm looking at this x-ray, and at first the fracture looks bad. But what happens even a few days later, it looked worse. There's more inflammation and swelling. It looks worse. So things can get worse even after the trauma. Things Things do get worse. Before they can get better. Yeah. That is part of the process. That's what I've come to understand is part of the healing process. And then about a week or so later, you could see things kind of calmed down and the bones came together. And then after a few weeks, you saw this small line. So you could tell there was a fracture there, but you could barely see it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is what people do. This is what people do. This is a process where an event happens and it's bad and then it's going to get worse for a bit because that's not abnormal. That is a expected part of the healing process. Things fall apart and at first it gets worse before people rally around and you figure out a scheme and move on. But then as things move on, people's lives become very meaningful. So relationships take on a new level. Spirituality takes on a new level. Um, Your ability to embrace and enjoy life. That has gotten even stronger for me, especially as I've gone on and especially as I'm aging and realizing life's, you, you get today. So take advantage of that. So yes, it's just this ongoing gift almost. 
And you did say that the doctor told you you wouldn't be able to run, but I do know that you do run. Mm-hmm. And can you maybe tell us some other things you've been able to do since that? Well, I think that's a really good. So one of the things that I had to look at, and I've not only seen with myself, but with many people that I looked at, that's whole notion of adjustment and adaptation. So as I said, my life isn't the exact same thing that I had before, um, but I had to do it differently. So yes, I'm running, but I don't run as fast as I used to. Yes, I'm swimming, but I don't push myself the way I used to. So I found a way to do it, but adapt it to a way that I felt comfortable with it and I could still participate in it. So yes, I've run several marathons since then, and I've done lots of half marathons and triathlons and things like that, but not in the same way I did it before. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's more fun for me now because I don't put pressure on myself. So Joyce, you went from the bottom of the swimming pool, and now I know that you're a full professor at Sac State. So how did that happen? Um, What would you give, tell us about that, that middle part? So the, I started um, wondering, am I the only person who had gone through this uh, such a significant event and had significant depression? I mean, almost suicidal. There was a point at one time where I was like, I don't think I can live like this anymore. And it was just a really hard ladder to climb. I thought, am I the only one who went through this? Am I the only one who questioned my faith? Am I the only one who, you know, was frustrated and angry and everything? And so I thought, well, if I want to get my brain back, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to school. I don't know. You know, I'll go back to school and see how I can move things through. So I live very close to Sacramento State and um, I wanted to go get a master's degree in nursing. So I went into the office to um, inquire about the master's in nursing program. I was talking to the secretary, and I told her I had had this event, um, you know, about a year and a half before. I didn't know how well I was going to be able to perform at an academic level, but I'd like to try. And as I was saying that, a woman walked out of the back office and came up to me and said, what is your name? And I said, Joyce Michael Flynn. And she said, what happened to you again? And I told her and she said, I was there that day. My daughter was on a a different team, but I was there that day. Why don't you come back to my office? And so I sat with Dr. Nelson and we talked about how to apply to the program, how I could work with that. And I eventually did my master's thesis, um, phenomenological inquiry, looked at how people who had gone through severe events, especially people who had survived a death event. What's an extreme event? What qualified as an extreme event for your study? So the people that I interviewed for the research had similar things. Some, you know, one woman had a cancer diagnosis at an early age, a young man with a spinal cord injury, um, a, a survivor of the Holocaust who had PTSD and went through that experience. Those types of extreme events uh, went through. So as I would talk to them and I would listen to them, you really clearly could see there was a pattern in how they accomplished this eventual survival that turned into 
growth. So you had people that um, had grown that they, they, that was part of the qualifying that they felt like they had grown from right. their trauma. Right. Mm-hmm. And the people that I interviewed were people that identified as having a post-traumatic growth. People mm-hmm. who I had known, people who I'd read about, people who I'd spoken to that I could see they clearly had metahabilitated. So right. that was So you were working on that and then you identified the stages and, and that was to, your dissertation? Right. Yeah, so dissertation. my dissertation evolved into really recognizing that there are clearly stages that people go through with facilitating conditions that help them get there and characteristics about that. So I completed the dissertation and I thought I was finished. Yeah, you <laughs> really were happy about that yeah. um, to be done. Yeah. Um, but there was more to do for sure. We talked about writing a book. The thing that really put me over the edge in terms of I've got to do this was when you said to me, this isn't about you. You found out some information that can help people Mm -hmm. and you need to get that information out. So this isn't about you. You have to put this out to give this to people to be of service, to be helpful. And that was really the tipping point for me Mm -hmm. where I thought, yeah, she's right. So when I made it less about me and more about what I could put out there for other people, that's when it really came and the structure came about. And when we were having those conversations, I was thinking about not just, and I think you were thinking about the client, the patient that had the event. But in my mind, this, these stages help people who not just are experiencing that event, but people who work with them Mm -hmm. um, to see that, like when I'm working in the ICU, because I'm a nurse also, and when I'm working in the ICU, sometimes I just see that very first stage, the trauma. And then you get a little down, like people, trauma happens, and then the people that I see are just always staying in stage one. I don't get to see them to the end, to that growth thing. So now I'm going to ask you about the stages. Okay. (laughs) All right. So we've been talking a little bit about stages. So I think maybe this would be a good time for you to give us a little quick synopsis of those. So great. So there are six stages. Okay. So stage one is the acute recovery process. That's when everything falls apart and people are confused. And so that would be more when you're in the hospital when you're just getting started with that therapy that you've been having and just kind of the whole disruption is what that is exactly right great the whole disruption of that where am i going now the confusion part's tough then stage two is the turning point and that you can see overlap into stage one where people don't necessarily even know how they're going to move forward they just have made some decision that i am going to move forward did you hear people in the interviews saying this was the time? That, could they pinpoint almost when they did that? It or was it kind of a process to get to that saying yes? Or, no, not, uh-huh. it wasn't necessarily like they pinpointed it. But when you listen to their stories, you could pick out the aha. That's the moment you that's chose to it, move forward. So, yeah. Happened. 
And then stage three was then once they choose to move forward, then you focus on treatments. And again, those complementary and conventional treatments where you try a variety of different things, that's when everybody puts their time and effort into moving you forward with different I could see that people in stage three, because they're doing the treatments and all that, that they could even get frustrated during that time because maybe they're not making as much progress as they want. Um, so that must be kind of a frustrating stage in a way. Things are moving forward, but can be it, difficult. It is. It is frustrating. People, like when I look at the stages of how things go through, people do slide back a little bit, but and they have to reorient themselves. But it is also always the movement forward. Mm-hmm. So then, then stage, stage four, four is the acceptance and adaptation. And that's when I tell them, you, you just need, everybody needs to take a breath. You've been working so hard and so diligently at moving forward. Now you just need to kind of reflect, where are we? Where am I? Where do mm-hmm. I want to go with this? Is that when you think you started thinking about going back to school? Or is are we still pretty far from that? No, I think I, I think during that time for in my own, in thing, own. I thought, you know, what is this going to mean for me? And I am a nurse practitioner. What can I help with clinically? Where do I want to go? And that's when I thought, if I want to get my brain really back, and I want to yeah. make, I'll go back to school. What do you, yeah, what do you need to do? Good. Okay, so stage five. And then five. stage five was reintegration. That's returning to life. And that is, you know, returning to whatever job or whatever mm-hmm. situation you can get back into. To me, that was returning to school. That was taking that on. That was also helping. That was pulling, uh, putting that through for me. And it, 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 it normalized my life, too. It gave me something to do during the day and move forward and add it to what I was already doing. Yeah, it must have been pretty exhausting. Not as exhausting as coming back after 22 minutes of CPR. Oh, That was the most exhausting thing. <laughs> the other part of it was not as exhausting. But then they, stage six is metahabilitation, and that's really beyond it that's really taking on the future that's in a no holds bar what what can i do now look at what i've been through look at what i'm doing where can i take this what can i do now and really moving forward in a very productive positive way so we all need to know um tell what caused you to go to the bottom of the pool like was it how did that happen So um, I obviously had seen uh, quite a few doctors because at the time I was 35 years old and drink, I don't smoke, I was very active. And so what happened? So after the event, you saw a lot of doctors. Oh, yes, after the event I saw, yeah, because I was in what I would consider perfect health, which, by the way, I think is the thing that kept me alive because Mm -hmm. I was in such good shape prior to this event. So I talked to a lot of physicians, and finally I'll just – tell you this we went to see this cardiologist at Stanford his name is Dr. Roger Winkle and he is specifically looks at electrophysiology so electrical problems of the heart and he looked at all my records and um, he listened to me and he said I have just a few things to say to you first of all you are the luckiest person I've ever met Mm-hmm. I have never met anybody who has had that much CPR who's actually alive, sitting up and talking to me. And then he said, um, 
And the other thing, too, your life has changed forever. Your life will never be the same. And there's decisions about how to run your life. There's decisions you have to make about your life. And those are your decisions. And if you want to do certain things that maybe are a little riskier, you have to make those decisions for yourself. And I just, you know, and he said, and finally, I don't think unless somebody was in your heart at that moment, we will ever figure out what happened to Mm -hmm. you. So even when I was driving home with my husband from that, because I was so excited that he was going to tell me this is what happened even though he didn't have a good answer I just felt so good after that because he had really acknowledged how my life he saw your life has changed your life's not the same and I knew that and he acknowledged that for me the other thing this whole notion of control you have choices they are your choices And that was so empowering for me. I just was always being told what I could do, what I couldn't do, how I shouldn't do, how I was. And he was the first one who said, no, you got your life back. Make choices about that. Drive home could have been very um, disappointing and sad and feeling powerless. Mm -hmm. But instead, you left feeling empowered that's a big thing I I felt empowered I felt responsible again for myself and I just it just opened some things up for me that allowed me to move forward Mm -hmm. and I needed that I needed somebody gave me some hope I needed that Great. So in the future podcasts, we're going to be interviewing some people and talking about the stages specifically and going more deep into that. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks. Don't miss our next podcast. Stage one, acute recovery. An interview with TJ Shushariba, whose wife and unborn child were killed in a tragic shooting at the Veterans Center in Napa, California in 2018. Learn more about post-traumatic growth through metahabilitation and about Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn by visiting metahab.com. You'll also be able to order Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn's book, Turning Tragedy into Triumph. Sliver of Hope, the podcast series on post-traumatic growth, is presented by Metahab and a production of Multipoint Content Strategies. If you'd like to contribute either your personal story or the story of someone you know, please email a brief description of your story to mystory at metahab.com. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a general discussion of the topic presented, which may or may not apply to the individual listener. It is not intended to provide and is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor, therapist, mental health professional, or other qualified medical professional. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the interviewer or guest.